Please be seated. I would like to offer my appreciation to uh, Reverend Dr. Jonathan Walton for the invitation to preach to you this morning and my thanks to his excellent staff here at Harvard's Memorial Church for handling all the arrangements of my travel efficiently and kindly. May the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God. Why am I here? This existential question which I pose for each of us to ponder today reminds me of another question I faced when I was seven years old. Why did God make you? God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him in the next. This is question six of the Baltimore Catechism, which I had to memorize at the age of seven in St. Thomas the Apostle Catholic School in religion class as preparation for my first reception of Holy Communion. God made me, and he made me in his image and likeness. That was an important lesson for a seven-year-old black child born in 1943, a refugee from the state of Mississippi, where my father was killed by a white man in a racial incident three months before I was born. God made me. I was raised in the north, but we visited family down south on summer vacations. One summer down south when I was seven, I went shopping with my mother in a downtown, downtown department store in Birmingham, Alabama. Hot and thirsty, I started to drink from a water fountain. I didn't see the whites only sign. Suddenly, my mother yanked me back and took me around back to the fountain marked colored. I felt her anger, not at me, but at the humiliating racial codes of that time. God made me, and I am precious in his sight, acted as an antidote to the poison of racism. A few days later, we went to Sunday Mass at Our Lady of the Gulf in my hometown of Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, church which my father, grandfather had helped to build. I went to the altar rail to receive communion. The priest carrying the host passed me by once, twice. Three times he passed me by carrying the body of Christ until he had given communion to all the white people and then finally to me. I stumble back to the pew in a hot daze of shame and confusion. I am seven years old, and because I believe that God made me, I know what that priest did was a sacrilege. These incidents helped to shape my later life and my academic career. Years later, as a scholar of religion, and the entwined relationship between race and religion. I did research, wrote, and taught about the religious life of slaves 
and their descendants, and about the role of religion and social change. So that past is part of why I am here visiting Harvard, where I had the pleasure of teaching a course last term at the Divinity School, now that I am in blessed retirement from full-time teaching at Princeton. Why I am here preaching in this chapel is due to trying to live out the answer to question six. I exist to know God, to love God, and to serve God. At the age of 50, I began to live that answer within Eastern Orthodox Christianity due to an encounter with an icon of the Theotokos, Mother Mary, at an exhibit of Russian icons in Princeton's art museum. She seemed to hold all the sorrow of the world in her eyes, and she reminded me of the sorrowful joy that seemed to be the dominant theme of my people and of my life. One encounter led to others, and one cold December day I was chrismated, anointed with oil, at St. Peter and Paul Orthodox Church in Manville, New Jersey, with St. Pantaleon, an early healer and martyr, as my patron saint. My conversion to Orthodoxy was not a rejection of my family's Catholicism, but the renewal of its ancient roots. To know God, how do we come to know God? As John in his first epistle states, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Whereas Jesus responds to Philip in John's Gospel when he asks to see the Father, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And as St. Paul puts it, he is the true icon of the invisible God. We are not, like the apostles, privileged to see Jesus with our physical eyes. But nonetheless, we meet him as did the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke's Gospel. We, like them, recognize the mysterious passerby in the words of Scripture. Were not our hearts burning within us while he opened the Scriptures to us? And in the breaking of the bread, the Eucharistic Supper, we know God also through the book of creation, the beauty of the world, which is charged with the grandeur of God, as the poet Gerard Manny Hopkins put it. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shears man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things.
And though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with ah, bright wings. Through wonder and radical amazement at the sheer beauty of nature, we may come to an intuitive grasp of the presence of God. I remember as a child loving the intense incense of lilac bushes in my front yard and standing arrested by the song of water rushing across stones in a nearby creek. I still am mesmerized by the whatness of things, the unique character that Hopkins called inscape. The currently colorful harbingers of spring, bright yellow within pale yellow daffodils, tiny buds emerging on the dogwood trees, the ostentatious profusion of forsythia bushes, the snow-white flowers covering chestnut trees, the loud squawk of the great blue heron startled on the nearby lake shore, the sigh of wind in the grove of redwoods, the audacious pink blossoms covering my neighbor's huge magnolia tree. Obviously, I'm describing Princeton, not today in Boston. Nature takes me outside myself and enchants me with the beauty of this, our oh-so-fragile world. God sustains us at every moment surrounded with beauty, if we but take notice. Awareness is the door within that opens out on wonder and divine presence. Be aware. Attend. How are we to love God? To know him is to love him. We are capable of loving God because God first loves us. Love all creation, says Staretz Zazima in Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Love all creation, the whole of it, and every grain of sand within it. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. The elder also reminds us that love in reality in contrast to love and dreams, is a harsh and dreadful thing. St. Isaac of Syria, in his ascetical homilies, remarks, similarly defining our interconnectedness to all of creation through our participation in God's love, which holds everything in being at each and every moment. In love, St. Isaac says, did God bring the world into existence? In love is God going to bring it to that wondrous transformed state. And in love will the world be swallowed up in the great mystery of the one who has performed all these things. In love will the whole course of the governance of creation be finally comprised. What is a merciful heart, he goes on. It is a heart on fire for the whole of creation, for humanity, for the birds, for the animals, for demons, and for all that exists. By the recollection of them, the eyes of a merciful person pour forth tears in abundance. 
by the strong and vehement mercy that grips such a person's heart, and by such great compassion the heart is humbled, and one cannot bear to hear or to see any injury or slight sorrow in any in creation. For this reason, such a person offers up tearful prayer continually, even for irrational beasts, for the enemies of the truth, and for those who harm her or him, that they be protected and receive mercy. And like, in like manner, such a person prays for the family of reptiles because of the great compassion that burns without measure in a heart that is in the likeness of God. I believe, moreover, that God not only created the world, but that he entered into creation and became human to save it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 3, verse 16. At the Last Supper, Jesus prayed that if we love him, we will keep his commandments and he will love us and manifest himself to us. Jesus comes to us in the sacred mysteries which we celebrate this morning and in the stillness of heartfelt prayer in our private rooms when cares fall away and our racing mind grows still as our prayer leads us perhaps into the place of the heart where we come into contact with that center that Thomas Merton so eloquently described as la pointe vierge, a point of nothingness which is untouched by sin and by illusion, a point of pure truth, a point or spark which belongs entirely to God, which is never at our disposal, from which God disposes of our lives, which is inaccessible to the fantasies of our mind and the brutalities of our will. This little point of nothingness and of absolute poverty is the pure glory of God in us. It is like a pure diamond blazing with invisible, the invisible light of heaven. It is in everybody, made in the image and likeness of God, we are meant to serve as living icons of the, divine, of the divine presence, shining forth with the light of Christ in our lives. To serve God, how do we serve God? St. Maximus the Confessor offers us a, pro a profound insight into the role of mankind as servants of God in the world. It is our task, he says, through knowledge, science, art, craft, and labor to discover and celebrate the logoi, the creative presence of God within creation, and to offer it back to God in thanksgiving and a cosmic liturgy. Of course, the primary liturgy is what we're celebrating today, the local liturgy. But there is also another liturgy, the liturgy after the liturgy, which our readings addressed. This liturgy is also required of us, or I should say it is another liturgy that we are privileged to celebrate. St. Maria of Paris, uh, a nun in, uh, in France who died in Ravensbrück concentration camp 
for forging false baptismal records for Jews to save them from the Nazis. St. Maria of Paris described this well when she observed that the churching of life is the realization of the whole world as one great church, adorned with icons, persons who should be venerated, honored, and loved because these icons are true images of God that have the holiness of the living God within them. The way to God lies through love of people. At the last judgment, I shall not be asked whether I was successful in my ascetic exercises, nor how many bows and prostrations or prayers I made. Instead, I shall be asked, did I feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick and the prisoners? That is all I shall be asked. About every poor, hungry, and imprisoned person, the Savior says, I, I was hungry and thirsty. I was sick and in prison. To think that he puts an equal sign between himself and anyone in need. I always knew it, but now it has somehow penetrated to my sinews. It fills me with awe. As St. John Chrysostom preached in a much earlier time, do you want to honor Christ's body, then do not scorn him in his nakedness, nor honor him here in church with silken garments, while neglecting him outside where he is cold and naked. For he who said, this is my body, and made it so by his words, also said, you saw me hungry and did not feed me. And inasmuch as you did not do it for one of these, the least of my brothers, you did not do it for me. We serve God, then, by serving Christ in his distressing disguise of the poor, as Mother Teresa, about to be Saint Teresa of Calcutta, so aptly put it. Ultimately, we serve God in community, caring for one another as fellow members of the body of Christ, bearing each other's burdens and sharing each other's joys. But ever mindful that community-like liturgy, as Bishop Polistos Ware reminds us, extends beyond church walls. Every form of community, the family, the school, the workplace, the local Eucharistic center, the monastery, the city, the nation, has as its vocation to become, each according to its own modality, a living icon of the Holy Trinity. Here I visualize the famous Andrew Rublev icon, the three angelic guests of Abraham at table under the oak of Mamre. It is surely significant that it is an act of hospitality which serves as the only visual likeness of the Trinity allowed in Eastern Orthodox iconography. Bishop Ware continues, when as Christians we fight for justice and for human rights, for a compassionate and caring society, we are acting specifically in the name of the Trinity. Faith in the Trinitarian God and the God of personal interrelationship and shared love commits us to struggle with all our strength against poverty, exploitation, oppression, and disease. Why am I here? Because long ago, I embrace that apparently simple catechism statement. God made me to know him, to love him, 
and to serve him in this world and to be happy with him forever in the next. I readily confess to you, my brothers and sisters, my many failures to live up adequately to these three commands. Yet I dare hope and pray that this Easter season will help me and each one of us to reach the communion of love and joy for which we all were made. Amen.